0: Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast. This is Marianne Sullivan, and today I will be talking once again to Kelsey Everley, who is now with Harvard Law School's Animals and Policy Program, as well as with Dina Jones of the Animal Welfare Institute about Animal Welfare Institute versus Vilsack, a case involving the rather confusing landscape of exactly what rules govern the slaughter of chickens pursuant to the Poultry Products Inspection Act. Whether any of them actually reduce the suffering of the birds how and why this relates to food adulteration, and how those rules, to the extent that they exist, are enforced. As you can imagine, there is a lot of lack of clarity and lack of transparency around these issues, in spite of the fact that we are talking about the deaths of billions and billions of animals. It's pretty unbelievable. But Kelsey and Dina are going to try to help us get a clearer picture, as well as consider what can be done to make things at least a little bit better. Before we get to that interview, I'd just like to quickly ask for your support for Our Hen House, which is, of course, the not-for-profit that produces this podcast along with the Our Hen House podcast. And if you are able to help out, that would be so great. So please go to ourhenhouse.org slash donate. You can join our flock for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make whatever donation you can afford and are comfortable with. And while you're at it, if you're not already a listener of Our Hen House, our other podcast, Please check it out. One recent interview that I am sure you will find interesting is on episode 641, and that is with the Reverend Dr. Christopher Carter about his new book, The Spirit of Soul Food, Race, Faith, and Food Justice. You also won't want to miss Jasmine Singer's interview with Lori Kim Alexander about veganism as decolonization. And my interview, I love this interview, with Gem Da Silva, about his groundbreaking work as an undercover investigator for animals, commencing in the 1980s and proceeding all the way to the present. So now let's get to the interview. Kelsey Eberly is a legislative policy fellow at Harvard Law School's Animal Law and Policy Program. Previously, she spent over seven years working with the Animal Legal Defense Fund's litigation team, most recently as a senior staff attorney. Kelsey is one of the country's leading experts on AGAG laws, and also is an expert on the pervasive use of misleading marketing and advertising to conceal products' inhumane origins. Dina Jones is the director of the Farm Animal Program at the Animal Welfare Institute. She is an expert in public policy related to farmed animal welfare, with a total of more than 30 years' experience at several state, national, and international animal advocacy organizations. Her areas of expertise include farmed animal industry practices and legal protections, farmed animal welfare marketing claims, and public attitudes towards animals and the use of animals for food. They will be joining me right after this. Mark your calendars now for the Animal Law Conference, November 4th through 6th in Portland, Oregon. Co-hosted by the Animal Legal Defense Fund and the Center for Animal Law Studies at Lewis and Clark Law School, this year's conference marks the 30th anniversary of this premier animal law event. Returning to the veg-friendly oasis of Portland, Oregon, the conference features discussions with animal law experts across multiple disciplines. Join in person, live stream the event from the comfort of your home or watch the sessions anytime on demand after the event. Special guest Miyoko Shinner, the founder and CEO of Miyoko's Creamery will deliver an inspiring keynote address and CLE credits will be available to attorneys, including ethics credits. Registration opens in mid-June. Don't miss your chance to join the conversation and immerse yourself in the community. For more information, visit animallawconference.org. That's animallawconference.org. Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast, Dina and Kelsey. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. I should say welcome back, Kelsey, because you've been on before. And I'm excited that we're going to be talking about this case, though. I'll tell you, before we got on, I said... I don't know, I'm a little confused about a lot of things, so I hope I can ask the right questions, because there's a lot that's confusing here, and it's a little Orwellian, too, I thought, I some of the language. It seems to mean different things in different contexts. So let's just start. I don't always start off with this, but I think we should hear explaining just some of the legal framework that we're dealing with to kind of give that context. Because people don't necessarily know even what these statutes are and it requires a little explanation. So first, can you just explain what the PPIA is and what it provides regarding the dissemination of adulterated poultry products, which is what, you
1: know, a very important phrase in this case? So the Poultry Products Inspection Act was passed in, I think, 1957, and it generally regulates the slaughter inspection, labeling, packaging of poultry products in order to ensure that poultry products are safe, that they are not misbranded so that their labeling is supposed to be truthful, and the. Act sets forth a uh, number of requirements that generally fall into two categories. So there's some requirements regarding misbranding, so the labeling part, and, and those aren't relevant to this case. And there's others that are relevant to adulteration. And adulteration is really a key phrase in the act. and it's basically the part of the act that's supposed to regulate the safety. Of poultry products, so to prevent people from becoming sick, to ensure that the meat from these um, chickens and turkeys is um, sanitary and safe, and so adulteration is defined as a broad, you know, definition and includes things like it can't, you know, the the product can't contain putrid materials or you know poultry with certain diseases. So the statute is meant to broadly protect people from dangerous chicken and, and turkey products.
0: So we should also mention that, in case there are some people who don't know, this whole thing exists in the context of the fact that we have the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act, which has not been applied to birds. So this is the only statute, I guess the only statute, that relates to the slaughter of birds at all. And can you just tell us how adulterated products are defined either by the statute or the regs Insofar as it's relevant here because because the the issue that we're dealing with here is does it relate to the humane treatment of or the inhumane treatment of these birds in any way? So what provisions are there in there that define adulterated products that that could be interpreted to relate to humane treatment?
1: So the one that comes to mind for me, and maybe Dina, you have other thoughts is the one that relates to poultry products that have been stored or maintained in unsanitary, conditions. So the Act defines adulteration with respect to the circumstances, if you will, of the product's creation. So I don't know if that answers your question, Ardina, if you have other thoughts about that.
2: I think broadly, adulteration can be interpreted as affecting the quality of the meat. So broken bones, bruises, dislocated joints, that sort of thing. Even the USDA would agree would have, represent adulteration. And the USDA back in 2005 published a notice in the Federal Register connecting those types of adulteration, uh, bruises, broken bones, dislocated joints, to inhumane handling. So the USDA itself has drawn the connection. We don't even need to do that. We're trying to take it to the next step, which means they would regulate in order to keep those forms of adulteration out of the marketplace, but they've drawn the connection between humane handling and adulteration. We don't need to do that.
0: Yes, they have drawn it, but they're in a little bit of denial about it from what I can tell.
1: And that's why we're here. I'm sorry, you wanted to add something, Kelsey? I just remembered another part of the definition of adulterated that's really relevant here is that it includes products from birds who have died otherwise than by slaughter. And so that basically means Unless the bird has died in the manner that by having its throat slit, you know, as part of the slaughter process after being properly stunned, then the bird is adulterated. And so, as we'll go on to talk about, there are so many ways that birds coming into these slaughterhouses are dying otherwise than by slaughter. So, they're dying on the transport trucks. They're dying on the conveyor belts they're dying in the electrified stun bath and all of those dead birds that die before the actual slaughter process are adulterated and so that's one of the big reasons where the plaintiffs here asked the agency to regulate the treatment of, of birds
0: so if i understand right the kind of the heart of your argument is that the statute and the agency define the product as adulterated but the way that got adulterated had to have been caused by inhumane treatment of the birds. And the agency has even, like, acknowledged that at times. Now, you you mentioned some of the horrific actual slaughter practices. What about, I mean, you mentioned broken bones and, and bruises. So without making everybody turn the podcast off because they can't bear to listen to it anymore, can you just briefly talk about what happens to these birds at slaughter and or once they enter the slaughter plant? that results in all these things that their dead bodies end up being called adulterated, but but it happened to them when they were
1: alive. So I think it's really important to, to remember sort of what state the birds are in when they even get, when they're put on the trucks and coming to the slaughterhouse. So when they leave their factory farms, they are often sick. They've been growing so quickly that their legs might be about to give out because their bodies have grown so fast they're packed in by the thousands inside their barns, and then they're picked up by their feet and shoved into transport crates, you know, one after the other as fast as they can, and they're crammed in there. So when they get to the slaughterhouse, they've already had the stressors of six weeks of basically torture on the farm and this hellish transport situation where they might be exposed to the elements, crammed in with all the other birds. So by the time they get to the slaughterhouse, many of them are either dead or close to death, they're not in good shape. And then their transport crates are dumped onto conveyor belts that take them into the slaughterhouse. So even before the slaughter process begins, these birds are often injured or sick or dying or dead. And so that's important to remember when we're thinking about the agency's obligation to prevent adulteration that comes from the inhumane treatment of these birds on the slaughterhouse premises and and at the point of slaughter. But then once we get into the slaughterhouse, there are so many different ways, as I described, that the birds can be injured or mistreated that lead them to become adulterated, as defined by the statute. And so that could be being dumped by the hundreds onto crowded conveyor belts where they suffocate and die. That could be their legs being broken as they're hung on the shackles. That could be drowning in the stun bath when the line, you know, malfunctions and stops. There's many, many, many ways, unfortunately, that these birds are injured and die that are horrible for the birds, but that also, you know, cause this food safety issue, this adulteration issue.
0: So uh, I think we need to go into a little bit more legal background because I, I just want to cover a few more concepts before we move on to the actual petition that you brought and the lawsuit. The statute requires Ante-mortem, of course, they, they they don't like to use the word death, I guess. anti-mortem inspection and post-mortem inspection. And can you describe what these inspections look like and what they're looking for? And exactly how many birds
1: bodies get discarded during these inspection processes? So there's anti-mortem inspection and post-mortem inspection, and USDA inspectors inside these slaughterhouses. Are supposed to conduct both, so they're supposed to examine the birds while they're still alive, basically to look for diseases and conditions that would render them adulterated and re- require the agency to condemn them. And condemning just means taking them out of the the human food supply. And so they're supposed to examine them on their transport crates and essentially sort the the dead ones and the and the sick ones and the ones that would be condemned out from the quote unquote healthy ones. But I think once you, you know, once you see what the slaughter process actually looks like, you see the number of birds coming in on the transport crates and see how many are dumped in and see what utter chaos it is, the idea of the agency doing this sort of bird by bird anti-mortem inspection is absolutely ridiculous because <laughs> there's absolutely no way that any person could examine every one of these birds or even one out of a hundred or one out of a thousand. These slaughterhouses are so huge and the volume of birds coming in is so, so enormous that it sort of defies belief that there could be an anti-mortem inspection process that adequately identifies, identifies birds. And so that job is often left to the people hanging the birds. They're supposed to be able to tell when they're hanging a dead bird or a live bird on the shackles, and so often, you know, they're not able to do that because they're trying to hang 140 or 175 birds a minute. So that's anti mortem inspection.
0: Yeah, and and I just want to make sure everybody takes note of that 140 to 175 birds a minute. It's kind of just unbelievable. What about but the post mortem inspections actually do end up with a lot of dead birds being being discarded, don't they?
1: Yeah. In the postmortem inspection phase, you know, inspectors are supposed to be looking at the birds and removing the carcasses that are adulterated, that have fecal contamination, or the birds are bright red from having been boiled alive in the in the stun baths or in the um, you know, the the water bath that is supposed to loosen their feathers. And so at that stage, inspectors are supposed to be examining the birds and taking out the dead ones are the ones that ha- were dead when they went into the slaughter process. But again, the volume is such that that is a very difficult job, even setting aside the a sort of privatized inspection system that is increasingly taking foot in the in the large slaughterhouses.
0: Yeah, and I think it's notable that they don't, you know, they seem to be pretty comfortable with a lot of dead birds getting discarded because most of them make it through and they're just worth so unbelievably little in and of themselves, that the fact that a lot get harmed in some way that makes them not pass inspection just is really um, a minor cost of doing business. All right, I have one more question, and this is the really hard one. This is the one that I, I had trouble figuring out. What the hell are good commercial practices? And what are they? Are they written down? Does everyone have a list of what good commercial practices are? And who makes them up? cause they're referred to and they're actually referred to I think in the regs at some point but they seem to mean they seem to mean different things in different places am i right
2: yeah they're referred to once in the regulation in the section regarding birds entering the skull tank and drowning they did mention good commercial practices in this 2005 notice that i mentioned before in the federal register that connected adulteration with humane handling and in that they actually mentioned the National Chicken Council and National Turkey Federation animal care guidelines as an example, not as good commercial practice, but example of good commercial practices. In discussions with the USDA, I pointed out to them that no one has ever identified that the government has never identified the National Chicken Council standards as representing good commercial practices in any formal way. And so they stopped referring to National Chicken Council guidelines as good commercial practices following that discussion that I had with them. So yeah, it's it's not defined, but it is understood to mean the industry's animal care guidelines.
0: Okay. But there, as you pointed out, there is this one place where it refers specifically to a requirement that the birds are bled out before their bodies are scalded. So that kind of gets put into the regs. And then doesn't the agency kind of act like they're always following good commercial practices? The, the, this seems to be like a major claim that they make. It's kind of Broadway to refer that everything that is done to the birds during the whole process is written down somewhere, but we we don't actually know where (laughs) Or, or what
2: they say. Yeah. And the other part of that regulation that refers to good commercial practices is the loss of process control. And that's actually what they refer to the most even over good commercial practices. So they're basically saying that they take action and they stop production when there's loss of process control. So what's the loss of process control? That's in the apparently in the eye of the inspector beholder because it's up to them to determine what loss of process control is. But that's the term that they use primarily to describe what's acceptable and what's not and to determine when they take action and step in. So going back to that regulation about the birds entering the skull tank, they decided a long time ago, about 10 years ago, that a single bird entering the skull tank would not be a regulatory violation. It had to be a loss of process control. So it has to be multiple birds. And again, it's up to the inspector's discretion as to what represents a loss of process control. How many birds? Is it two, is it five, is it a dozen? So supposedly one bird is not loss of process control and not an indication of failure of good commercial practices. It has to be multiple birds.
0: And we don't know how many. No.
2: No. I know it's all very confusing. It's and,
0: confusing. I, I think it might be meant to be.
2: Yeah. Well, that's the reason why we brought the, the petition And ultimately, the lawsuit is what they're doing is extremely arbitrary. And they kind of have themselves painted into a corner because they're doing these checks. So every slaughterhouse, every shift, the inspectors look for compliance with good commercial practices, even though they've never defined what it is that they're inspecting for. (laughs) So I'm not
0: crazy. That's actually what's going on.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So.
0: Except for this loss of control where an unknown number of birds go into the scalding tank before they've bled out. Except for that one place where there's like sort of, a, there's not really a line drawn, but it's a pretend line drawn. Is this just complete self-enforcement? The, the industry just decides like what good commercial practices are? Does FSIS enforce them in some way? That has to do with the main treatment of the birds, or they just say they exist and will we'll trust the industry to, uh, to enforce them?
2: The answer is yes and no. It
0: would be. It just would be.
2: <laughs> <laughs> they actually do take enforcement actions for violation of undefined good commercial practices. So what's an enforcement action? They slow the line, they stop the line, and they do this regularly. We see the records documenting that they do it, but I think most of the time they do it, they don't even document it. So they will stop the line themselves physically, hit the button, stop the line. They will tell the plant to slow the line they will put a red tag, which is called a reject tag. It has a number on it. It's applied to a certain area of the plant or a certain piece of equipment that is not functioning properly and cannot be used until the tag is removed. They do those things for poultry slaughter and they do them for violations of good commercial practices, but it's done relatively rarely to our knowledge. And it's done very inconsistently because they haven't put any of this in regulation.
0: It's crazy. And and I think I noticed in your petition that you said they might vary from plant to plant or from region to region because it's nothing's written down about what a good commercial practice is.
2: Yeah. So we the, the Animal Welfare Institute has reviewed every single good commercial practice record issued since January 2006. So thousands of them. We have our own database. We enter them And we brought a lawsuit to force the agency, the USDA, to voluntarily disclose the records. And we won that, well, in a settlement agreement. So they're now available online for anybody without FOIA. So we have that information. And there are plants that are huge plants that slaughter hundreds of millions of birds every year that never get any records. And then there are other plants where they're obviously very judicious, conscientious inspectors writing up a plant repeatedly virtually every day for something. So it varies greatly. I've discussed this with the USDA. They're aware of this. And this is another argument for regulation is that this quasi-voluntary system that they've set up is not functioning very well. And we know it isn't because we look at the records and there's so much inconsistency from plant to plant as to how the inspection personnel handle the humane handling of poultry.
0: Wow. Really astounding. All right. So I'm assuming that that's the background, the legal background, if, now that we're going to get to the petitions. But there's, is there anything else you want to add about just a, a law I didn't mention that is relevant here or regulation that is relevant that I didn't mention? Or do you think we can get into the petitions?
1: I don't know if we're going to go into this when we talk about the petitions, but I do think it might be a little bit helpful to understand why we're not talking about the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act. If you want to go into that, Marianne, at all? Well, I, I think I mentioned at the beginning that it doesn't apply. But do you want to go into a little bit more why we believe it doesn't apply, or they why they well, believe it doesn't <laughs> apply? <either? laughs> we believed it did apply. Some people did, maybe maybe not. <laughs> at least there was an argument that the term livestock could include birds, and there was a whole there was litigation about that, and the agency said it didn't, and so that's why we're not talking about the humane slaughter act anymore we're talking about the poultry products inspection act but there is a hu- humane methods of slaughter act that is supposed to ensure the humane slaughter of livestock and birds make up 98% of the farm animals slaughtered in this country and so that law doesn't that while not applying to them means that there is no humane slaughter law that applies to the vast vast majority of Animals slaughtered, and this is very different from other countries
0: where, uh, I mean, not everywhere, but certainly in Europe, humane slaughter acts obviously apply to birds. I think it's shocking that that it doesn't, but that's that's where we are. All right, so we're going to get into your petitions, but before we get into them, let's just briefly describe what a petition for rulemaking is like. Who can bring one, and and what it can accomplish? Just for people who aren't familiar with administrative law.
1: Yeah, so I mean, any person can submit a petition for rulemaking to a federal agency. You're basically basically asking the agency to issue rules to carry out the purposes of a, a statute. So in this case, the plaintiff organizations were petitioning the USDA's Food Safety and Inspection Service to issue rules pursuant to the Poultry Products Inspection Act, and you know, to ask the agency to to carry out its statutory mandate under that under that act. And let's talk about the first one in in which, if I
0: understand, you asked FSIS to promulgate regulations to reduce poultry adulteration because of this kind of obvious situation that they were only catching it after the fact. And they could be catching it before the fact. And that would improve the entire process is have I have I basically said the idea behind this. And can you tell us who the petitioners were and and what they were
2: arguing? Well, the petitioners are the Animal Welfare Institute and Farm Sanctuary. And it, it was, just to go back a little bit, I mentioned this 2005 notice, which was the first time the USDA acknowledged there was a connection between the quality of products being produced and how the birds were being treated. It was about 2010 to 2012, we actually discovered through other FOIA requests that the USDA was routinely checking compliance with these so-called good commercial practices in every poultry plant. We had no idea they were actually doing that until we did a FOIA and found out that they were. And so we suddenly had uh, this uh, trove of information regarding what was going on in slaughter plants, poultry slaughter plants that we never had before. We didn't want to go back down the route of arguing humane slaughter, which is a technical term. It means insensibility prior to, you know, rendering an animal insensible before cutting or shackling and hoisting. We didn't want to do that because 1995, ALDF and AWI had an unsuccessful petition for that exact thing. And then there were two unsuccessful lawsuits in the 2000s. So we decided to try this alternative approach of adulteration, and we knew that we would be covering handling and not necessarily humane slaughter, so insensibility was not an issue for us. Unfortunately, we felt that we couldn't address that because we were going after the connection between handling and adulteration. So uh, we drafted the petition, and part of it was based on these records that we had received through FOIA. And it took us about two years to draft it because we waited for FOIA records to come in and so submitted the petition in December of 2013. And it was co-written by the Animal Welfare Institute and Farm Sanctuary.
0: So what practices were you referring to specifically that you you were saying these are inhumane practices and they're contributing to adulteration and that's why they come within, that's why you should be writing to to prevent them? I I guess we've kind of gone over some of the things, but can you just briefly talk about what it was you were really trying, hoping to stop?
2: Yeah, you know, that's kind of interesting because based on the undercover investigations that were done by animal advocacy groups in the early to mid 2000s, we thought that the main issue was uh, excessive use of force by workers, particularly in shackling. And so we expected to see a lot of that. And there is some of that but the majority of adulteration or potential adulteration was probably not coming from that, at least based on the records. My view is limited here, based on the records we received from the USDA. Instead, it was things such as Kelsey mentioned before with the treatment of the birds and transport and holding, so extreme heat, extreme cold, really high DOAs, live birds being discarded with dead birds, and so they suffocated. And one of the things that we didn't know that much about that really surprised us was malfunctioning equipment or improper operation of equipment by plan employees. And so one example, and Kelsey kind of alluded to this, is where they're dumping the birds onto a conveyor belt to prepare pair to shackle them. And maybe there's a maintenance issue on the slaughter line and it stops, but the dumper operator doesn't notice or doesn't pay attention. He just continues to dump the birds. And you have hundreds of birds suffocated in those kind of instances. And we really weren't aware of that kind of mechanical issues and also just worker competence until we got these records. And so we, all of that is the foundation of why we brought this Petition and ultimately decided to challenge the denial was because it's not just workers beating up on animals. There is some of that, but there's just the whole systematic process all along the way. There's an opportunity for birds to be stressed out by heat or cold or to be injured or to die. But if they die, the body's going to be condemned. So from an adulteration perspective, We're not that worried about the animals that ultimately die because the USDA and the plant workers probably catch almost all of those. question is, what happens to all these birds that are injured or stressed out throughout the process and the bodies are not condemned and the carcasses go through and they end up in the marketplace? That's adulteration that these regulations could address.
1: Can I just add one thing about the, and this goes to, I think, a phrase we were using earlier, loss of process control. They're not exactly in the same way, but... The Animal Legal Defense Fund did an investigation of a Texas poultry slaughterhouse in 2015. And it wasn't even worker, not, it wasn't worker sort of incompetence. It was, they had to dump a certain number of crates every day. They had a quota they had to meet. And so even though the conveyor belt was breaking down all the time and hundreds of birds were suffocating, getting mixed in with live birds, you know, they had to meet their quota and the speed and volume of these facilities is again, so great that many of the adulteration, you know, risks that Dina's describing just come from the overwhelming impetus to slaughter a huge number of birds every single day. And so that's that's something that the petition, you know, was was trying to get at.
0: yeah. and I, I think these are arguments that we see the movement trying to make in so many different contexts that the industry always wants to talk about. The workers, that the workers are, are bad apples or, or doing it improperly. And it's the system. I mean, the whole system forces the workers to uh, be in this position. I mean, not that there aren't there isn't any gratuitous cruelty, but most of the cruelty is just simply built in. So they catch the birds who are dead. And you say, but they don't catch the birds who have been injured. But is the, like their function, because they don't, except for that one concession they made where humane treatment makes a difference. Their function is really to keep the food healthy, not to worry about the treatment of the birds. Is the food unhealthy? I mean, it's defined as adulterated. And is it actually unhealthy because of the kinds of injuries that are caused to these birds? Or is that just a legal argument?
1: I think certainly if there's a broken bone in a piece of chicken, that's a consumer safety and a food safety issue. But I think we have to look at this against the backdrop of the catastrophe of food safety that is poultry products right now. There have been so many investigative reports that talk about the amount of chicken and turkey that are just allowed to be contaminated with drug-resistant salmonella and campylobacter. So the agency is clearly failing to prevent these massive public health issues that cause 2 million infections a year and can lead to incredibly terrible health consequences, especially for children and the elderly. Those issues are related to certain inhumane treatments because one of the banes of animal lawyers' existence is the continued use of live hang slaughter and when birds are supposed to be electrified and and numbed and supposed to have their necks cut but so often miss the, the blade and so they drown in the scalding tank. The scalding tank is basically a fecal soup. You know, the water is supposed to be warm enough to loosen the birds' feathers, but not so hot that it cooks their flesh. And so you have this pool of water into which all these birds are being dropped and they've got bodily fluids on them and they're breathing in this air and that's a place that, you know, the birds can become contaminated with these germs that all the other birds have. And so it's one example of the link between an inhumane process and adulteration. And and the petition wasn't saying you need to end live hang slaughter. It was just saying, having recognized the link between inhumane treatment and adulteration, you need to regulate it.
0: Yeah, that really makes a lot of sense that these kinds of bruises and broken bones, putting aside the horrific cruelty to the animals, because that's what the law does, in in a place where there's an enormous amount of infection, obviously that infection is much more likely to be part of the bird that's, that's headed home in, into somebody's home because there's broken bones or broken flesh or whatever. So yeah, that, that does make a lot of sense. And it's, I apologize to everybody for having to make this connection, but you know, I can't, <laughs> it's, 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 it's the insane law, legal system that we have. All right. there's a second petition before we, before we move on, I just want to, to the decisions. I just want to mention, can you just, say what the second petition added?
2: The uh, Animal Welfare Institute started looking at the worst worst problems, and we identified transport and holding as the cause of probably the most deaths. It's probably somewhere between 10 and 100 times the birds that die in the skull tank die before they ever get to the slaughter line. So not only are there birds that are dying, there have to be the birds that survive. They have to be enduring tremendous stress. And it's usually heat and cold. They're not adequately being protected from extremes. So I made the mistake of writing a letter to the USDA, which I do regularly, but I ask for policy and regulation changes, and so they deemed it a petition. So the letter was about these transport and holding incidents, which was neglect of of birds, and the fact that the inspector spent so much time writing up these sometimes two, three pages long descriptions, narratives of what happened. It was clear to me that the inspectors were frustrated and they had no recourse and they wanted a recourse. I mean, that they were speaking to me through these records. And so I thought I'd help out and uh, write a letter and suggested that they address this problem. And unfortunately, by deeming it a petition, it sat there for years and was eventually combined. We were, we were told, I was told during a meeting with them that they were going to combine our two. My letter and our original petition into one and so that's what
0: they did. It's it's a said commentary that because it's deemed a petition that means it will take years. But yeah, that's where we are. And it it hasn't in fact taken years, but here we are, the petitions were ultimately denied and and can you just the petitions or the petition, I'm not sure which, um were or was denied
1: and can you tell us about that decision? So the the agency sent this letter that said, we're denying your petition because and it gave two basic reasons. The first was we don't have jurisdiction to regulate inhumane treatment. They love telling everybody that they don't have a humane slaughter law, so they just have no power to do this, which is ridiculous because the entire petition we we have not been talking about the humane slaughter law and humane slaughter. We have been talking about adulteration, and that's what the petition was about. The petition was saying. You already regulate all these things that are happening in slaughterhouses in order to prevent adulteration. Here's one more thing you need to regulate. So the idea that that we're asking for humane slaughter regulations is, is just false. But the second grounds was that the existing non-regulations, the guidelines and the non-binding and undefined good commercial practices, those are doing a good enough job. And they didn't say why or how. They didn't engage with any of the evidence that AWI and uh, that Animal Welfare Institute and Farm Sanctuary had presented. They just said we've considered this and we're doing a good job and it's it's effective, period. That was the end. So it was a like a two-page denial letter. This is what I thought I was confused
0: about, but I guess I wasn't that confused because, because what I thought they said was that we don't do anything about humane treatment. And anyway, what we're doing about humane treatment is just fine. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. I, and we're not going to tell you what that is. Exactly. We don't write that down, but it's good. Don't worry. So these Good commercial practices, we don't really know what they say, but they do say that they require that the birds be handled humanely. And we just, we just don't really know what that means or whether that's true. Aside from the fact that we don't know what they say, do we know how they're enforced? I understand that there's something called a voluntary systematic approach for enforcing good commercial practices. Is that true? If it's true, it sounds pretty bad.
2: Yeah, typically they use the systematic approach with uh, livestock, with the HMSA. I don't hear it used with good commercial practices. But the plants do have, the bigger plants, all the big companies, do have their own guidelines regarding good commercial practices. And so when the inspectors go around, so as I mentioned before, every... poultry slaughter plant every shift and we FOIA'd these lists of checks so we know that they actually do conduct them. So hundreds of thousands of checks are done every year by the USDA of good commercial practices, whatever that is. And when they go around and see a violation, so what's a violation? Well, they started out by using the National Chicken Council guidelines, and then they dropped that because we challenged that. And so basically now it's if the company violates its own voluntary guidelines regarding how birds are handled, then they write them up. But even if they didn't have their own voluntary guidelines, they would write them up if the inspector, it's totally at the inspector's discretion. If they think it's a violation of their interpretation of good commercial practices, then, then they write them up. And we know this, so we FOIA, the records, there's two different types of records, non-compliance records, and that's for regulatory violation, which is pretty much just birds going into the skull tank. Everything else, all the other problems I mentioned, aggressive shackling that results in bruising, birds dying in the holding area, birds being buried under other birds, equipment malfunctioning, all of that is written up as a memorandum of interview, an MOI, which means it's non-regulatory, but they violated some industry standard. And it's kind of like a, hey, you did this, don't do it again thing. So it really is just a memo. But they release those to us and we have those and they write about, so of all these so- so-called violations of good commercial practice, about 80% are written up as non-regulatory Memorandums of interview and about twenty percent are non-compliance records.
0: Okay, well, I understand now why I was confused L- looking at this. So let's go. Finally, I mean, so they said no, we're not writing any regs. Don't be ridiculous. Everything's fine. So that brings us to the lawsuit, and it's kind of exciting. It hasn't gotten very far yet, but the first decision is kind of exciting. I think an Animal Welfare Institute and Farm Sanctuary are suing the USDA and FSIS, and and What is the cause of action specifically? It's under the Animal Welfare Act? I mean, (laughs) under the Administrative Procedure Act?
1: Was that a joke, Marianne? (laughs) 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 Yes, under the Administrative Procedure Act, as we've been discussing, the agency's decision-making was arbitrary and capricious. They failed to examine the evidence. They made a decision that was contrary to the statute.
0: And they moved to dismiss on standing, of course. Uh, Also arguing that the order is non-reviewable. And you're in uh, the Western District of New York, right? Right here in Rochester, where I am right now. And can you just tell us about your
1: standing arguments and the court's response? So the plaintiff's alleged organizational standing, you know, As Dina has been describing, Animal Welfare Institute has been working on this issue for decades and has devoted, I wouldn't even attempt to quantify how many resources to trying to address this issue. But nevertheless, the agency denied the petition causing AWI to have to expend more resources. Similarly, Farm Sanctuary has been working on this issue for years and years and has to continue devoting resources to it because the agency unlawfully you know, d- denied these petitions. So the plaintiffs alleged organizational standing under Havens Realty. I believe they also alleged membership standing, Dina, because some of your members are poultry product eaters. Is that correct? Am I remembering? Yeah, I believe that's correct. Yeah, essentially that the agency has failed to properly regulate adulteration, which increases the risk of foodborne illness to um, Animal Welfare Institute's members. And uh, I believe the court decided solely on the Havens issue and and
0: solely for Farm Sanctuary, but that's all you need, right? Yeah. <laughs> as long as you're in on something, you're in. So you're in court. That's kind of exciting after a rulemaking petition, isn't it? It doesn't happen every day. That's right. <laughs> they also argued that it, it's a non-reviewable order or decision. Can you explain that argument and,
1: and the court's response? I remember getting the same argument when I was litigating a, a petition, a rulemaking petition under the Poultry Products Inspection Act and being very surprised by it then and, and surprised by it now. The argument is essentially, you know, because the statute gives the secretary of agriculture discretion to promulgate regulations in order to effectuate the purposes of the act, that a court is powerless to review the Decision to deny these petitions because the agency action is committed to discretion by law, and so that's an exception in the Administrative Procedure Act to you know courts being able to review agency action. So it, it's amazing that the even the denial of a petitions for rulemaking, the agency made made the argument that it has the discretion to do that without a court being able to review. And thankfully, the court you know denied that argument and said no. You know when when you deny a petition for rulemaking, you take that action, that action is not committed to a- the agency's discretion by law. And so a court can review the denial. That was good. I was also very shocked by that argument, though. You know, I don't, I don't know everything
0: that's going on. But of course, a single enforcement decision, yes, whether you're going to enforce a law ab- against a single individual, that's totally discretionary. We know that. You can't argue that that discretion was abused. It's just up to them. But I've just never seen the argument before that a rulemaking petition asking an agency to make whether or not they should make rules is completely within their discretion, as if it's impossible (laughs) for them to abuse that by they could just not make any rules at all and, and everything, you know, whatever. Yeah, I was really pleased with the court giving that somewhat short shrift.
1: It's amazing that they, they they say that there's no law to apply, so no standard by which you could judge their conduct, which is just a shocking argument. They could they just decide not to regulate at all, or decide to do something that was obviously increasing, you know, food safety, and there would be no power for a court to order otherwise. Yeah. Well, so you're on your way. What are next steps in this case? So right now we're discussing with the agency the contents of the administrative record and we'll be settling that issue soon. And then we'll be briefing a summary judgment in the case over the next few weeks and and months.
0: Okay, great. We'll be looking forward to hearing more. And Kelsey, you have recently come to Harvard. And so you're you're probably taking
1: over this case midstream. Yeah, so I jumped into the case um, after the motion to dismiss was denied. And um, I'm really excited to be working with Kathy Meyer and the students uh, at the clinic, and um, this is just one of you know many exciting cases and projects that the Harvard Clinic is working on.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited that Harvard took this up. I don't know whether you were part of the decision process, but I love this case and I, I love where it's headed. Well, I hope I love where it's headed. So thank you to both of you and thank you, Dita, for doing what sounds like years, literally years of, of work paging through incredibly painful materials to come up with this information. It's the amount of um, background work that goes into a case like this is unbelievable. So thanks for sharing it with us. We'll be really excited to to find out what happens next. Is there anything I should have asked either of you that I didn't?
2: No, but I did want to mention that the Animal Welfare Institute and other groups as well they take a very comprehensive Approach to this issue. I think a lot of people view poultry slaughter as one of the primary farmed animal welfare issues in the United States covering birds. And this is only one of almost a dozen different approaches that the Animal Welfare Institute has taken to poultry slaughter. And I do wanna mention one other thing that we've done just in this last year that's rather exciting. So we're also lobbying Congress on this issue and we decided to try it through the appropriations process and we were successful in the first year getting a direction from the appropriations Ag Appropriations Committee to the USDA, they've been directed to brief them on the issue of loss of process control involving bird handling at slaughter. And we're gonna build on this. So we're not taking for granted we're gonna have a positive outcome with this case. We're trying many, many other approaches, including Congress. And overall, I'm optimistic. I think it it always takes a variety of approaches to anything to make any uh, major progress on an issue. And this is just, the lawsuit is just one of many things we're doing.
0: That is very exciting news. And I'll be also looking forward to hear what's going on on that legislative level and on any other level that you can work on this horrific, horrific issue, which is just, I mean, it's a national disgrace. Thank you for telling us about it. And for, I'm not sure you made everything clear, but you made me feel like I wasn't an idiot for not understanding it. So I appreciate that. (laughs) And best of luck going forward. Thanks, Marianne. Thank you. So thank you so much for joining us on the Animal Law Podcast. We will be back next month with a new show. Thanks so much to Kelsey and Dina for sharing their thoughts and expertise with us. Thank you to Jen Riley and Vicki Beachler for their help in producing this podcast. And in the meantime, if you like what you hear, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Consider leaving us a good review. And if you are able, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Thank you so much for tuning in.